From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McRae. For many parents, battles over screen time and devices have become a regular part of family life. Whether it's a toddler throwing a tantrum when the iPad is taken away, a preteen demanding their own phone, or teenagers wanting to play video games all night. Every stage of childhood and adolescence is now accompanied by its own parenting challenges when it comes to digital devices. On today's program, we'll discuss how to manage kids and screen time with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy for treating severe depression. And how reconstruction can be done during oral cancer surgery. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. And I'm Ian Roth. We're back talking with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Angela Mackey. Dr. Matkey, recently the World Health Organization recognized gaming disorder as a mental health condition. And this kind of plays into what we were talking about before the break mm-hmm. and screen time. And if you have too much screen time, it can start to affect your mental health. So this didn't surprise me at all. No, it, it didn't surprise me at all either, based on you know what I've anecdotally seen in my office. So what exactly is gaming disorder? So a gaming disorder is when their video gaming um, use starts to cause difficulties in all parts of their life. So it impacts their um, daily activities, their sleep, um, their physical health, their social health, their occupations, um, and their relationships with like other people um, to the detriment of their own health. Um, and they have difficulty cutting down and go through withdrawal when it actually, it actually does occur. What is the detriment to their own health? So if we see things um, related to their mental health, right, okay. that would be a detriment to their, their own health. Um, if we see, um, you know, type 2 diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, um, all, all kinds of things that we um, associate with a sedentary lifestyle. And if you can identify what the addiction piece is, depending on what age the kids are, mm-hmm. Ian, remember this, they will be able to know, oh, I am addicted to this right now. They won't want to admit it, but mm-hmm. it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do your uh, patients say when they're in the office with you? Um, they and they will report that they feel that um, that they can't disconnect. Um, that they get scared about the thought of have not having their their digital devices available with them. Um, it's not uncommon to hear that. Others, other kids have no problem whatsoever, and and that makes sense when you think about the distribution in the population. So, so pretend that you've got a. 11, 12, 13, whatever age kid, and they're not quite sure where they fall on that line. How do you, what do you say to them when they're in the office with you? Sure. Uh, <laughs> so getting, getting at the, the background of their questions and where their concerns are. So something called motivational interviewing is, is something that we use with all types of behaviors that, that maybe need to change. You assess where they're at and their willingness to change um, and seeing if they can recognize maybe how, it's at, how it is affecting. Um, and if they can say that and they can verbalize like, oh, yeah, I'm not doing this. I used to do this. I used to enjoy doing that. If you can get them to say those, those kind of statements, you can use that to kind of um, point out to them, like, look, you are recognizing it is affecting your life. It can also be a fine line, though, I mean, about convincing a kid that it's harmful because, uh, you know, I've had friends whose kids come back with the argument, well, I could be doing drugs, I could be doing Mm -hmm. other things that are more harmful. Mm -hmm. See how smart they are? Yeah. It's true. You know, it becomes uh, difficult to convince them that what they are doing is is harmful to some degree, doesn't it? 
it probably depends on the situation and it depends on on um, the child. So anybody who has some type of addiction, it's it's pretty hard for them sometimes in the moment to recognize their their symptoms and how they're affecting their life and their relationships. Um, so yeah, it, it can be difficult at times. Can we expand this conversation out? We have about four minutes left, but mm-hmm. into social media as well, mm-hmm. because I think in some aspects, um, at, well, whether you're an adult or you're a kid, mm-hmm. um, having social media contacts can be a good thing, Absolutely. but um, also can be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So did you ever think when you were going to medical school that you'd have to... <laughs> work with patients on how to manage their social media? No, I did not think that. I was part of the generation of Facebook, so Mark Zuckerberg and I are the same age. I remember when it rolled out at my university. No, I never imagined that this would be part of, of my practice so much and such an integral part. So what do you say at those well-child visits, um, 14, 12, uh, about social media? So I, I, I just start the, the conversation like, you know, what what do you do on social media? Um, what apps are you using? How do your parents monitor it? Do you have you ever felt threatened? Do you feel safe? Um, I even ask questions about sexting and um, solicitation because there are predators out there, and I have had patients that have been uh, solicited or been attempted to be trafficked as a result um, connections through social media. How do you judge what's too much and what's perfectly healthy. I mean, I would imagine it's different for every person mm-hmm. and, and for different age groups, but how do you how do you judge when they're crossing a line? When we start to see uh, either some of their like biophysical uh, profiles being concerning, so BMI, blood pressure, um, early diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes that we'll see in adolescence or glucose impairment, um, problems with their liver, um, then you look at all of the other ways that it can affect their life. So their social relationships. Do they no longer go out and spend time with friends? Do they do they talk to anyone anymore outside of what maybe video gaming or things like that? Um, how are their grades in school? How is their sleep? Um, are they feeling rested? All those kinds of things that you can actually you know measure and stuff. And if it's causing the, those concerns in those areas, that's pretty concerning, right? Um, if somebody had um, was not taking care of their high blood pressure or was not taking care of their child with cancer, it'd be you know a similar concern, right? And these these also can cause concerns, not to that level, obviously, but in a different way. I'm part of the same generation. I was in college Mm -hmm. when Facebook came out, and I remember when parents started being able to get a Facebook account, and there was a big collective eye roll among college students and teenagers Mm -hmm. when their parents could be on social Mm -hmm. media. And and I can see from younger kids' generation's point of view that when their parents are telling them it's too much, it's kind of like, well, you don't get it. You're Mm -hmm. you're not my age, and you're not seeing Mm -hmm. that. So how do you balance those uh, discussion points when a parent's trying to place limits. Right. I, that's going to be have to be a personal discussion um, with their own family, and it's going to have to be based on what, what they place as values in, in their family's life um, and what's important to them, right? And I, I think they're they're going to have to just make that, make that discussion together. It's not something that we can necessarily set limits on. But what has not changed is yeah. mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so uh, whether you've got kids that are eight or 16 in for their well child mm-hmm. visits. How is it that mental health, the, the mental health of your patients, how do you gauge that and what struggles are they seeing? Sure. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that all well child visits, we start screening for emotional behavioral concerns. 
Um, and so we start that very young, and we are not necessarily screening for depression when we're young, but we're screening for other symptoms. Um, as they get to their teenage years, we're doing a, here at Mayo, we're doing a, a screening tool called the PHQM at every well child visit. Um, or if concerns um, are, are there for an acute visit, we will get that um, questionnaire. And it asks a lot of really good questions that go into the symptoms and the diagnosis of depression. So we're using that to help to help screen, but we're also asking the question, right? So there's a difference between giving them a screening tool and asking them to fill it out and also asking them discussions. So I say, how are things going? You know, how do you deal with ups and downs? How, um, how do you feel like your mood is overall? Because sometimes it doesn't always correlate to what they put on their screening questionnaire because their parents helped them fill that out. We've been talking about kids, screen time, and mental health with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Angela Matke. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Matke. Thanks for having me, guys. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Tom Shives joins me as co-host. We'll learn how transcranial magnetic stimulation is used to treat depression, and later on the program we'll discuss reconstructive surgery for oral cancer patients. Do you want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider, or... Check out the more than 250 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McCray, and welcome to the program, Ian Roth from the Mayo News Network. Thank you so much, Tracy. Have you been having a good summer? I've been having a great summer so far. Excellent, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, we're talking about uh, as summer vacation rolls on, you might find your children are looking for things to do. They've already been to the pool or off to camp. So what comes next? Often their first choice is screen time, you know, watching TV, playing video games, or connecting (laughs) with friends via social media. Oh, heavens, yes. Uh, The 2017 (laughs) UNICEF report surveyed the online experiences of children around the world and found that children represent one in three Internet users worldwide. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And here to discuss the dangers of too much screen time is Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Angela Matke. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Matke. Thanks for having me back. All right. I know for a fact that my kids are playing um, Fortnite while we're recording this. So I gotta, we got to wrap this up so I can get home and bust them on it. All right. We'll try and be quick. <laughs> okay. Very good. <laughs> so when it comes to screen time, how? first of all, were you surprised at the UNICEF report that one in three kids are internet users no not at all yeah no not at all not especially not from what i see in my office Mm -hmm. my daily setting one thing we ask about all their well child checks is you know how much screen time are they doing per day and how are their parents monitoring it and being involved with it and sometimes i'm blown away kids are 10 12 hours per day Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So what are the recommendations? Because I know that there's not 10 to 12 hours. Right, right. Well, let's start with the little babies first. Um, So as we as we become in a more digital environment, the younger children are being exposed to digital media at really early ages. And the recommendations are to to not have young children to be exposed to it. And um, if they're going to do anything, video chatting may be an, an acceptable way. This is what I did with my children, with their grandparents, a lot of FaceTiming. They can learn through that environment, especially if a parent is sitting next to them. So having an adult sit next to them and explain to them what they're seeing, what they're hearing, that really helps translate that um, into something that they can understand. Um, otherwise, seen in a two-dimensional um, setting, is it's hard for them to incorporate that into their brain and understand what's going on and learn from it, especially... Mm-hmm. So that's infants and toddlers. That's infants and toddlers. So okay. between two and five, um, it used to used to be two hours or less. But that was a recent update as of a couple of years ago based on some emerging research that as we saw, especially t- uh, toddlers and preschool age kids use more um, media uh, every hour per week. We saw increases in their BMI. So the recommendations are one hour per day or less of recreational or um, enjoyable kind of screen time per day. Did you notice, though, that 
was it that every hour was replacing an hour that they were doing physical activity? Is there a direct correlation there? Or you know, that's what the, that's what the hypothesis is, right? So if we're taking away um, from sleeping, from eating, um, from playing, from practicing social skills, um, the, and doing more screen time, we are going to see detriments in other areas as well. All right. What about the next age group? So in teens, so, you know, six and above, the recommendations are two hours per day. And I know that you're probably thinking, yeah, right. You know, if we look at our own social media, our own um, screen time consumption, it's probably a lot more than that, um, even for adults. So. And what is the difference, though, for teenagers doing over two hours of screen time versus adults doing the same? Well, I'm going to just speak to the teenagers part because that's what I see and that's what I know a lot about. But um, in teenagers, when we see that they are consuming a lot more screen time, there can be effects in all different areas. So their sleep, um, that's one of the biggest areas. So they're doing their screen right up until bedtime and they're keeping their, their uh, smartphone in their bedroom. Um, and we know that affects their sleep because they're being interrupted and they're also staying up later. And also that blue light um, that screens give off can affect um, your hormones that regulate sleep um, and your sleep cycles. Other things that can be affected, obesity and their BMI and their weight. Kids need to be moving. We all need to be moving and to be active. Um, and if you think that they're in school for maybe eight hours, nine hours a day, um, they need to have some time for downtime, right? They need to have time to be bored. They need to have time to be creative and imaginative. They also have time need to have time to spend with their family. They need to eat. They need to sleep. And they also need to exercise. And so if they're not getting exercise, if it's taking from the exercise time, we're going to see obesity levels increase. Um, we also see effects um, sometimes in risk-taking behaviors. Um, there's more of an association with that, and there's um, the idea that more acceptance of those things that kids are seeing on social media, um, thinking that this is what everyone else is doing. Um, we can also see um, concerns with mental health. And so there's kind of this U-shaped curve that goes along with mental health in teens um, with how much uh, social media or with how much screen time they're consuming. So in, in the short end of, of ones that are, are not doing very much, um, we actually see a little bit higher increases of depression rates. And the thought is these teens are more um, observers of social media. They're not engaging and communicating, and then they're just looking at other people's posts on Instagram and things like that. Um, so they're, they're not getting that social connection and that benefit that we do see um, in teenagers and adults of being able to find other people to connect with and, and talk with. But then on the higher end, ones that are using significant amounts of screen time, we are seeing a lot more higher rates of depression in that area as well. Do you think that that's a, a cause uh, or, or a symptom of, of depression? Is If you're spending more time on your screens, are mm -hmm. you is that a sign that, that the child might be depressed, or are they... Is depression being caused by all that? I think that's a great question, and I think it's hard to sort out. I think you have to think about it from both perspectives. Um, is the child being um, more self-isolating them from themselves, and so they're turning to that to fill their time, um, or vice versa? Um, is is consumption of so much media leading to some of or contributing to some of the symptoms that they're seeing of depression? So what qualifies the screen time here? Is it everything from the good old-fashioned right. TV yeah, right. down to their smartphone screen? Yeah, it absolutely is. So it's really simple. Anything that has a screen in front of it, that's screen time. And these screen time limits really apply to recreational or enjoyable screen time because kids are spending a lot of time in school and education learning, learning with screens, which can be incredible tools to help them learn. Um, but we're talking about the time they're spending outside of school um, or the time they're spending texting in between classes or snapping and things like that. <laughs> Going back to the younger kids, when we're talking about toddlers and, and kids of that age, that we want to limit that, but you see it more and more often that mm -hmm. your parents are out in public with their yep. kids, their kids are right. you know, acting out in some way, so they put a screen in front of them as sort of a babysitter or a right. way to calm them down. Right. Right. How do you balance 
trying to get control of your kids with right. limiting their screen time? Well, first of all, I've, I've never done that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, the, the big thing is... Me either, Yeah, right? Because we're absolute perfect parents. Never would we do that. <laughs> but that's a, that's a great point you bring up. So we're using screens as a babysitter to um, help them calm down with their emotions instead of letting them experience emotions and learn how to struggle through those emotions and calm down. So it's a really, it's a missed opportunity um, th- that parents could be using. Maybe they're using it once, you know, once in a blue moon that I think that's certainly fine. You have to have flexibility, right? Um, but using it every time their child gets upset um, to help them calm down as a tool um, is not a great tool. We want them to have better ones. So that's the way that we were raised because there was not a smartphone for our parents to mm-hmm. shove in front of our faces. So we, as parents, need to learn mm-hmm. just because we have this tool now, we don't just give it to the kids, like Ian said perfectly, as a babysitter. Yep. So uh, play out what a parent should do mm-hmm. when they're standing in line at Target and everyone around them is giving their smartphone to their kid to pacify them. Right. What do you want parents to do? Right. So it starts before they get to Target, right? So this is like your whole parenting approach and your whole parenting model, which could be a whole other discussion for another day. But um, it begins with, um, you know, labeling their child's emotion. If they're frustrated, I, I see you're frustrated, depending on their age. Um, and then trying to distract them onto something else is a, is a really good idea. But, but validating their emotions, seeing what they're frustrated about. And then just affirm, no, if you will stick to it um, and you use that consistent approach over time, you're not going to see those meltdowns very often. We call it um, an extinction burst when kids escalate their behaviors as they get more and more upset because they're trying to push the limits to see how far they can push you before you give in. And if you continue with that same you know, consistent approach, no matter where you're at, whether you're in Target or, you know, you're at home and stuff, things are are, are going to be okay. There's going to be ups and downs. My kids have temper tantrums in public and stuff like that. But just trying to stay calm yourself is also another another thing. I, I'm not a parent at this point, but, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have nieces and nephews. And I think that from what I see, it's got to be a hard, fine line between treating screens as a privilege and a right mm-hmm. when they're so ubiquitous around oh. us all the time. So how how do you navigate that of, like, this is a privilege, not not your right to be on a screen all the time? I think it starts early. It starts with your approach, you know, um, with your children when they're young, right? So I'm using it as a reward for good behavior rather than something that they're entitled to that they get every day um, and and try not to use it as a punishment. Does that make sense? So with with children, we always want to try and encourage positive behaviors. When we start to be punitive and doing negative consequences all the time, things aren't as effective. Um, And so if you can use that approach, it, it helps. We've been talking about kids and screen time with Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Angela Mackey. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little more about kids and mental health. How does screen time play a role? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. For many women over 40, a yearly screening mammogram to check for breast cancer is a fact of life, along with the anxiety of waiting for the results. But what if you could get a test that offered better cancer detection, fewer false positives, and more peace of mind? Dr. Robert Maxwell, a Mayo Clinic radiologist, says with a 3D mammogram, many women can. The technology is also called tomosynthesis, and healthcare providers say it offers three distinct benefits. First, 3D mammograms are more accurate in the ability to detect and diagnose cancer as compared to traditional two-dimensional mammograms. Second, 
Two-dimensional screening mammograms provide only two images of the breast, the top and the side. And third, a 3D mammogram would obtain approximately 300 images, as compared to the two-dimensional mammogram, which is about four images. And that means better cancer detection and fewer false alarms. This is especially valuable for women with dense breasts, as they have a higher cancer risk. Dr. Maxwell says it means greater peace of mind, less anxiety, more accurate diagnosis if a woman has cancer, and more certainty that she doesn't. In other news, intermittent fasting is cutting yourself off from food and beverages other than water for a certain amount of time. Some people fast for religious reasons, and others fast for weight loss. But is it a healthy way to lose weight? Mayo Clinic dietitian Michael Bryant says they're hearing a lot more about intermittent fasting, and it means the voluntary abstinence of food or beverage for a prolonged period of time. Bryant says while fasting can be a tool that helps some people with weight loss, it's not necessarily the entire answer to everybody's problem. Our body needs a given amount of nutrients every day. Denying your body of calories for an extended period of time isn't recommended for anyone who's physically active, pregnant, under 18, or has certain medical conditions such as diabetes. Bryant says if you're considering fasting as a weight loss tool, make sure that when you do eat, you're taking in quality, healthy ingredients such as the proper amounts of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and lean protein. Fasting may not be for everyone. Talk to your healthcare provider before beginning any type of fasting weight loss plan. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Depression is considered to be a treatable condition, but for some people, standard treatments aren't effective. And when traditional or standard treatments such as medications and talk therapy or psychotherapy don't work. There is at least one alternative, and it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. TMS is a non-invasive procedure that uses magnetic fields to stimulate nerve cells in the brain to improve symptoms of depression. And here to explain how TMS works, good luck with that, is Mayo <laughs> Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Simon Kung. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kung. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet both of you as well. I say good luck with this because the only thing that I know about any sort of treatment along these lines is electroshock therapy.、Right. What is it the same thing? So TMS is not the same as electroshock therapy. And、um, TMS, you asked, how does it work? So it actually is something where. A lot of the psychiatrists, we don't have an exact answer of how TMS works. There are many theories of how it works, and probably the best theory that that I can give you is that the current thinking is that there's a depression circuit in the brain, and we need to stimulate that circuit, and、um, so so that's kind of the best theory. But the way TMS works is there's a magnet that's put against the head, and this is an outpatient procedure. You don't have to be in the hospital, and this. This magnet, the machine clicks away, and there's different settings. But usually, it's a, a four-second、uh, stimulation and then 26-second pause, and this goes on for about 37 minutes、uh, for over the course of the treatment. And you have to have many of these treatments. So the current thought is about 20 to 30 treatments is what we need to help with depression. So it is definitely not the same as ECT because electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy. Is、uh, something where we take people, put them under anesthesia, and deliver electricity to their head to cause a seizure, and that's been around since the 1930s or 1940s.、Uh, and 
in the popular media and movies. It right. doesn't have such a great reputation. Exactly. But uh, but certainly psychiatrists will do the electroshock when it's appropriate. Um, it's reserved for the the most severe depression that's refractory, and it's nice that now we have another option, which is TMS, which is not a convulsive therapy. Doesn't require being in the hospital. Um, it doesn't have the side effects of ECT, which would be things like memory loss. Um, so TMS is a treatment that has a lot fewer side effects than ECT. So it doesn't require any anesthesia? Correct. No anesthesia. So you come in as an outpatient and you would do this 30 times, 20 to 30 times, 20 to yes. 30 different days? Yes. Are there any side effects of this treatment? So the main side effect is it is uncomfortable where the uh, stimulation is at the head. So usually the magnet is put on the side of the head and, and this tapping. When it taps, I've had patients tell me it feels like a woodpecker is, is tapping mm. against my head. Mm. Um, sometimes when, uh, after about one week, patients usually say, oh, it's annoying, but, but um, it's, I can tolerate it. Sometimes when it's tapping away, there might be some twitches of, around the eye or around the face, so that can be expected. But really, the discomfort is the main, the main side effect. There's no memory impairments with TMS, which is the biggest thing that people worry about with ECT. Does it take 30 treatments before someone starts to notice a difference, or do they start to gradually feel something right yeah. away? In the official studies, when they looked at this, most of the studies wait about six weeks, which is 30 treatments, and the initial studies showed that at four weeks, people might start feeling better. Now, I've talked to some other psychiatrists who tell me that if a person's going to get better from TMS, they think that there's going to be uh, an iota of improvement by the second week, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's the case, but I've also had patients who don't get any, don't feel any better until towards the fourth or fifth week of treatment, and it really it does require that towards the end of treatment before people start feeling better. I assume this is not a first-line treatment for people with depression. Who is a candidate? So the ideal candidate is somebody who's at least tried maybe one or two uh, up to a few psychiatry medicines for depression, and those haven't worked. Now, officially, the FDA approves TMS. If you've just tried one antidepressant and it doesn't work, then it's FDA approved for that. The practical question is, who's going to cover this? So insurance companies will usually want to see that a patient has had at least maybe four treatments before the insurance company, or I'm sorry, the practical uh, consideration is insurance companies will want to see that patients have had at least four different antidepressant medications uh, before they'll cover TMS. Now, another common reason people look to TMS is because medicines have side effects. So yeah. we frequently have patients say, I take a medicine and after a few days I have to get off it. It makes me so anxious, nervous. So the insurance companies will frequently say, if you're a person who has reactions and bad side effects to medicines, then they would consider covering that as well. It would seem to me it would it should be the opposite because medications mm -hmm. of antidepressants are terrible. Right. And sometimes worse than dealing with the depression itself. Yeah. Why are we heading for a time when TMS will be first and then antidepressants? That could conceivably happen in the future. Mm -hmm. I think right now the thought, the standard approach of psychiatry treatment of depression is medications, trial and error. Um, TMS can always be used yeah. 
even earlier. And sometimes families come in and they do say, hey, I've only had one medication or I don't want to try medicines. I, I want to try this TMS. And TMS is safe, low side effects that um, if the family is willing to pay out of pocket, we can certainly go ahead and give TMS instead of trying yet another antidepressant. And how much is the treatment? So the cost is about $10,000 for the entire 30 treatments. The treatments occur Monday through Fridays, so that works out to be six weeks. Wow. Man, I, especially for teens and kid, that population that really has trouble with side effects, I would think this might be uh, a great future. Yes, yes. What percent of patients fail medical management? Drug treatment. There are lots of different numbers uh, published, but one commonly accepted is that probably one-third to half of patients might not get better with depression um, after, let's say, three or four medicines. Wow. So it's quite a, it's quite a, a sizable number. Of, yeah. Yeah. And are you studying this at Mayo Clinic? Is there research being done? For transcranial magnetic mm-hmm. stimulation? Yes. So we both... We have a clinical service as well, and we've had our TMS services since uh, 2009. And we were involved in one of the initial studies that got TMS approved. And more recently, so this is quite exciting, my, one of my colleagues is looking into TMS for adolescent populations. So exactly what you just said, yeah. Tracy, about the adolescents. Um, so we've got a research study with that. We also have a research study about TMS and bipolar depression, uh, because TMS is not officially approved for bipolar depression yet. It's only approved for major depressive disorder. And there's also a, a study my colleague is doing about a uh, different form of TMS uh, for depression. Now, it seems like uh, we hear about more and more people being depressed. And in fact, the CDC has confirmed that, that the rates, uh, the, the number of people with depression, the rate is on the rise. Is there any explanation for it? Yeah, that's a, a that's very the best question of the whole interview. <laughs> yeah, isn't one, it? and you get one <laughs> sentence to answer it. <laughs> well, Ten seconds for that. Depression is such a complicated um, uh, illness, and depression is a major cause of worldwide disability. I always think of depression as there's brain chemistry factors, there's psychological factors, and there's social factors. For example, what's going on in our lives. So, I, I think the um, complexity of life, the world. It, Things don't get simpler. Um, that contributes to it. Um, but at least there, we try to have more medications and treatments and even psychological treatments to try to help people feel better. In a word, the cause is multifactorial. Multifactorial. That is the, <laughs> that is the right word. All right. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Simon Kung about a treatment for depression when drug treatment has failed, and it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. Dr. Yes. Kung, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about reconstruction surgery for oral cancer patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, today we're going to talk about oral cancer, cancers of the mouth and that general area. And oral cancer usually appears as a growth or a sore in the mouth that it doesn't go away. Oral cancers include cancers of the lips, the tongue, the cheeks, the floor of the mouth, the hard and soft palate, the sinuses, and the pharynx, or the throat. And oral cancers can be life-threatening if they're not diagnosed and treated early. 
The treatment of patients with oral cancer is sometimes complex and may require several different specialists. The oral surgeon, maybe a cancer specialist, and a prosthodontist, someone who can restore the teeth or part of the jaw when it's missing. Traditionally, treatment for oral cancer has first required surgery to remove the cancer and then a separate surgery or surgeries to do reconstruction. Now, in an effort to make things easier for patients, surgeons at Mayo Clinic are removing the cancer and doing that reconstruction simultaneously during the same surgery. Yeah, pretty neat. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic oral surgeon, Dr. Kevin Arce. Welcome to the program, Dr. Arce. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. So, you know, we don't too often think of cancer of the lips or the tongue or the mouth, but it's really not all that uncommon, is it? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, It's a fairly common cancer, yes. And which is the most common of the ones that we talked about are in this region? So in this region, the most common would be in the tongue and the floor of the mouth uh, area. And there must be people who are at risk for these types of cancer? At the highest risk are uh, uh, heavy smokers. Smokers more than people with that use chewing tobacco? Uh, yes, it is actually higher, even though um, chewing tobacco can be associated, you know, because of its uh, chronic irritation of the tissue, and particularly the uh, cheek area itself. But uh, smokers would be at higher risk. And how do they usually present to you? Uh, usually they present with an ulcer that doesn't uh, tend to go away. and it, uh, A sore, huh? A sore, correct. A sore that doesn't go away or a growth of sorts that the patient has noticed and what uh, usually prompts their attention is doesn't go away and it gets bigger with time because uh, not too uncommon they don't have pain associated with the area, so they tend to think that there's nothing wrong going uh, going on. Do you, Can you tell by looking that it's suspicious? Uh, yes, uh, we can tell uh, because it um, shouldn't be there uh, to start off with, and it just has some uh, appearance uh, with regards to the size, the color of it, the ulceration or the sore you know that might be present, those things would alert us that uh, it looks suspicious and that needs to be biopsy. I would think a sore in the mouth would be something that you notice right away, but is this something that a dentist will see before a patient notices a sore? Um, it can happen. You know, that's the case. Um, you know, at times as part of their routine, either dental evaluations or they might have, you know, what they think is a dental problem, a tooth problem, and that might be bringing up the ulcer in the area, whether it's irritation or whether it's directly related to the tooth itself. Once you see something that looks suspicious to you, how do you work it up and how do you finalize the diagnosis? So we first do a a thorough clinical examination and not only focus on the area uh, in question, but also at the surrounding uh, tissue, including the teeth. Uh, And then uh, once we've completed that evaluation, then uh, typically we would proceed with a biopsy when the uh, when the area has been there for an extended period of time and it hasn't uh, healed or it looks uh, clinically suspicious. We we use kind of a two-week rule uh, for that. So if it hasn't gone away or we haven't seen improvement uh, during at least a given period of time and long enough for it to resolve on its own, then we start uh, getting uh, concerned about what exactly is behind the the, the sore. And then is there some imaging that you do to help you determine the extent of the disease and whether or not it has metastasized or spread elsewhere? Uh, so we do do um, imaging. Uh, we'll do a, a CAT scan or a CT scan of the uh, maxillofacial region uh, to look at the tumor. So that's the jaw and the, of the, and jaw, the face. C- correct, of the jaw and the face. Uh, we can do also an MRI, and then uh, we'll get a chest uh, X-ray um, in particular for 
uh, patients that are uh, heavy uh, smokers or smokers, you know, in general. And if we want to elaborate more in, in terms of spread, uh, we can also get uh, what's called a PET scan or a PET CT uh, scan or even, even uh, further imaging of the chest with a CT scan of the chest as well. Once the cancer's been diagnosed, what do you do? Uh, so for the oral cavity, the predominant uh, treatment uh, for it uh, is surgery, surgery first. And it's usually followed by either radiation or radiation and chemotherapy, depending on what the tumor behavior is and the extent of the, basically how invasive it is as a cancer. And also if it's found in, like, for example, the lymph nodes, uh, which is also part of the, not only the evaluation, but also the treatment in the majority of patients with oral cavity cancers. Uh, can these cancers, like most, spread in two ways, either through the lymphatics, in which case they end up in the adjacent lymph nodes, or through the bloodstream, and then they usually go to the chest? Uh, correct. Uh, so this one is predominantly through the lymphatics. Yeah. All right. And um, once you've made the diagnosis uh, and do the surgery, a fair amount of the time it's pretty disfiguring surgery, isn't it, it depending it, on the location of the tumor? Absolutely. It could be. It could be depending on the location of the tumor, depending on the extent of it, as well, we have to remove um, normal structures as well as um, uh, as the, the the tumor itself, the cancer itself. Well, then let's talk about combining those two surgeries, the cancer removal and the reconstruction, into one surgery. Why was it not always just one surgery? Well, one of the aspects of it is um, the advances that have happened, in particular with reconstruction and and as such, with microvascular reconstruction, we can, we can bring tissues from other parts of the body and reconstruct a, either a new jaw or replace tissue that has been lost in the tongue or the floor of the mouth area. And uh, with those uh, changes in reconstruction uh, and approach to it, we can do it all simultaneously. It's not only from a, from a cosmetic, from an appearance standpoint, but also from a functional standpoint as well. If you have to take out part of the tongue, there's no way to reconstruct that, is there? We we can reconstruct the loss of the the loss of the muscle itself, but we can uh, put tissue back so it minimizes scarring and it still allows the mobility and the function of the tongue to be much better. Really? Mm-hmm. Because that didn't used to always be the case. Yeah, so yes, and what we use is actually uh, tissue from the forearm uh, region with the associated arteries and veins. And that's how we reconstruct a new tongue or floor of the mouth area or really any tissue in the oral cavity. Pretty amazing. So uh, tell us before we finish up, uh, nobody wants to get oral cancer. Obviously, don't smoke, don't chew tobacco. What else can people do to, to try and prevent getting cancer of the mouth? From a prevention standpoint, those would be the two. And then they should have a comprehensive uh, oral cavity evaluation as part of that as well. And usually that can be done by your dentist. So you need to see your dentist once or twice a year anyway, right? Correct, correct. All right, Dr. Kevin Arce, an oral surgeon at the Mayo Clinic, talking about oral cancer treatment and reconstruction. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Arce. Thank you very much. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.